Welcome, dear listener. My name is Charlotte. I am the creative and technical director here at Evidence for Faith. You are about to listen to our first podcast series titled Science in the Bible. In this first lesson out of 11, Michael will be addressing Is Science the True God? You can find the video version, PowerPoint, worksheet, and many other resources at our website, evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. You can also directly support this broadcast and help us keep it free for everyone by donating at evidenceforfaith.org give. And with that, here is Michael Lane in Is Science the True God? Hi there, welcome to Evidence for Faith with your host, Michael Lane. I am so glad you're with me today because we are starting a whole new series, a brand new series here for you, and it's going to be called Science in the Bible. Science in the Bible. Science is one of our four pillars that makes up our whole ministry here of Evidence for Faith because we have the numerical number four in our name for the four pillars, and science is one of these pillars that we're gonna be hitting. This one is, like I say, the beginning of a lesson. This is an introduction to this, and I'm titling this one, Is Science the True God? You see, a lot of people struggle with science in the Bible. I have seen this for years, for decades, actually. Yes, I'm old. Uh, and a lot of people have an idea of the Bible being like on one mountain way over here and science being on another mountain way over here. And in the middle, there's this massive chasm and ravine that is uncrossable, that it's just like a bottomless pit or something, and the two are separated. Oh my gosh, that is so incorrect. And if you sit and you study scripture carefully, and if you look at what is true science, you'll see, and what I'll be showing you in these many lessons that we're gonna be doing here, you're gonna see that these guys are bound together. It is absolutely amazing how well science and the Bible fit together. Nothing you have to sort of strain your way of thinking, oh, if I use my imagination, I can get over here. No, nothing like that. I'm gonna show you true science, true biblical study, right out of the Word of God, and you're gonna see that these things match up. So, are you ready? Are you game to go for a little lesson here with me? As I said, this is the intro into this, and is science the true God? Oh, this is a frustrating one, but let's begin. You see, let me just t start off with a story. Um, just in the last few years, I've had two parents that have contacted me from when I used to work at the camp in uh, northern Wisconsin. Two parents contacted me, both of them at different times, both of them had the same story. They said, Michael, my child has thrown their Bible away. I found the Bible in the trash can in their bedroom. And when I questioned them about it, why is your Bible in the trash can? they responded to me with the same thing. They say that their God now is science. They believe science. Science is the truth and the Bible is not. And so they've thrown it away. The parents, both of them were desperate. What in the world am I supposed to do? How do I handle this? What, what can I, I say to them? And I was like, wow, boy, well, there's, um, do you know why they actually did this? And what they said was that just the whole thing, they believe in truth and science is truth. 
And I said, boy, can you think of anything that is the most changing God, lower G emphasis, there is than science? I mean, how morphing, how shape-changing is this? Because this God of science is constantly incorrect and having to correct itself. I don't think I'd like a God like that. <laughs> I want a God, like it says in the book of Malachi, God does not change. I love that. And that's one of the beautiful things about him. But people now claim that they only believe in truth and that science is truth. Thus, science is their God. That's what they believe. I, many times they'll just come up and people will say to me, I've had this many times. People tell me, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Oh my gosh. I, I'm not kidding. Just in the last five days, I've heard this expression from somebody saying this exact same thing to me. I don't believe in God anymore. I believe in science. And I'm like, what in the world does that mean? But that's the mainstream idea today, that um, the term science is supposed to be like definitive truth of all knowledge. That's what they say. Actually, it seems like people are using the term science more in a philosophical sense than a verified truth sense, if you actually sit and look at this carefully. It's not like that. Now, I just used the word philosophy. And philosophy, ooh, um, that gets some Christians really scared. Uh, philosophy is not a scary thing. It's taught in all major universities. Many high schools have classes on philosophy. The word philosophy, the subject of philosophy, is basically from the Greek word uh, philo, um, philosophia. Philosophia, which means literally the love of wisdom. It's a way of thinking. Today we use the words uh, a worldview, um, and it's about certain topics and the way that people think about these things, what these topics mean, um, existence, uh, ethics, time, uh, significance. These kind of things are what philosophy tries to deal with. And generally, if you take a class in, in philosophy in, in a school or institution, it's going to teach you that basically they usually use this, the four R's, responsiveness, there's reflection, there is reason, and there's re-evaluation, the four R's. And that's what basically makes up philosophy. The whole idea about philosophy is to deepen understanding. Wow, that sounds so philosophical, doesn't it? Anyway, that's what it is. In, in light of this, you can see there is, in a way, it seems like, since we're trying to understand something, trying to understand ethics and meaning and et cetera, by looking at these things, it seems like that and science are linked together. But let me tell you, the two are not synonyms. Science and philosophy are not synonyms. They're not the same thing. Uh, philosophy for instance, is not universal in its outcomes. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Many different philosophies exist. There are many different worldviews. Just walk into um, some area where there's a bunch of people and start asking about their worldview uh, or their, their ideas on different things. You're going to see there's a lot of different ideas out there. There's a lot of different philosophies that exist. And the thing is, people will defend each one of these. Now, how can they all be correct? Well, today, now we get into this idea that everybody can be correct. Well, <laughs> that's actually illogical that everybody can be correct. Um, if that's the case, then why are we giving out grades in school? Um, because everybody is correct. Science, though, is different than that. Science should be, now let's get this down first. Science should be universal in its proven discoveries. And these discoveries then are tested 
and observed by using the scientific method. That's what we use in science. Um, as a science teacher myself and have worked in the field of science, we use the scientific method many times. But as to what science cannot test and observe, well, there it sort of falls into a philosophical approach of science. Um, and you'll find, oh boy, well, you find defenders and opponents on, on that too, um, on something that can't be tested and can't be observed. But true science, and when I use the word true science, I use those words, I'm talking about science that is applied to the scientific method, which is observable and is testable. I mean, that's how medications are done. That's how we determine many things. We use the scientific method. It's taught in all schools. Uh, it's one of the first things we start teaching children in elementary school, and it's used all the way into research. As when I used to work in genetics research, we uh, fisheries genetics, we still use the scientific method for all this. You see, both philosophy and science are in search of the same end cause, truth. No question about that. Both are looking for truth. But truth can hardly be non-absolute. In other words, you can't have everybody being correct. It doesn't work like that. I mean, just think of school. It doesn't work like that. Everybody is not correct. Um, you can't um, use certain products on your body without uh, having a certain effect. You can't say, well, this is motor oil. I'm going to go ahead and drink this because to me, my truth is this is chicken soup. Y you can't do that. You can't take chicken soup like from Campbell's and pour it in the crankcase of your car and say, well, this is my truth. The outcome is not going to work. There is absolute truth to this. There has to be or the universe just falls into chaos. For, how simple this is. 2 plus 2, for example. 2 plus 2 is 4. If I had two coins sitting on a table, two coins over here on a table, put them together, guess how many coins I get? 4. I don't get 5. I don't get 12. Well, I see 6. Well, then you're seeing double uh, because something's wrong here with your eyesight. No, this is an absolute. It can be tested. We can run all sorts of experiments, all sorts of, of testing to see if two and two equals four. And you know something? It does. And that's the science of mathematics. Um, people who say that, oh, uh, there's no absolute truth. Well, then you're going against the whole laws of mathematics. And wow, you're going to run into all sorts of problems doing that. I can't imagine building a house that does not have absolute truth in its uh, mathematical formulas on the way that the house is structured, the angles and stuff. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. And so that's what we're talking about here. Give you another example. A living person, a nice, healthy, living person walking down the street goes into a little uh, cafe um, and says, well, my truth is I can have whatever I want here. And uh, actually, their cafe is in the aquarium. And they decide that they want to have a meal of poisonous pufferfish. Now, pufferfish contain a poison called tetrodote toxin. Uh, it's abbreviated TTX. It's one of the most poisonous substances that we know of. Not just, not just pufferfish, um, blue-ringed octopus, one of the most dangerous creatures on the planet, has the exact same chemical in their saliva. Um, now, you can't sit down and start eating stuff like this, this TTX, and say, well, my truth is it's not going to hurt me. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to be dead. You're going to be dead because it's a poisonous substance. No matter what your truth is, there is an absolute truth. This is a deadly toxin. 
Oh, I'll give you another example. You can't go and have a cup of tea and, oh, I know what I'm going to use instead of sugar. I'm going to put polonium-210 in here. Oh, that will be so delicious, and it won't hurt me because polonium-210 to me is truth. That's a sweetener, and that's my truth. It might be different to you, but that's my truth. And I put polonium-210 inside of here, drink this. Guess what? I'm going to be dead. It kills you. It's... There is a truth behind this. That is a toxin. That's not good for you. Or, or how about this one? Let's walk around in the woods and collect some mushrooms. And let's get some death cap mushrooms. Oh, I hear they're delicious. Um, those who get to eat them, they don't get to tell the story much afterwards because they are deadly. They have a very, very powerful toxin. Amatoxin is the chemical inside these things. It destroys your liver. It, it kills you. Oh, but you could say, well, these are ordinary button mushrooms to me. That's my truth. No, there is an absolute truth. These things will kill a healthy person if you eat them. You see, some things are absolute. Some things are certain. Some things aren't. There is a difference here that we have to be careful of. And people get so confused over this kind of stuff. Uh, they go to science many times thinking that science is going to give them the best answer for this. So they, they go to scientists and they say, give us the answers for everything. Well, scientists are constantly trying to find this, primarily using, most of the time, using the scientific method and trying to come up with um, these uh, different answers to life and stuff like this. The problem is science has its limitations. Now, for instance, let's just take a little example here for, uh, for a moment. Let's take a science question. Let's get away from food and drink and stuff. Let's go to a science question. How many stars exist in the universe? Hmm. Well, we're going to have a whole unit in this series, uh, a whole lesson just on astronomy. But I want to pick on this one just for a moment here. Um, how many stars exist in the universe? Or maybe science could answer this one. What's at the bottom of a black hole? Now, science, scientists have often tried to give an answer for these things, um, but the thing is, no one knows the answer. We haven't found the answer to that. We don't know. Uh, though they used to say, science by the way, just to let you know, science used to say that there were 1,026 stars in the universe. Yes, you heard me correctly, 1,026 stars. That's how many there were. How do we know that? Because scientists back uh, a long time ago went out in the backyard laid down and counted them one night and that's what was taught in all major universities for centuries as truth really now we got the space telescope the hubble space telescope they put that up there like holy cow we can't count the stars um there's more stars than than we can shake a stick at i mean there are so many stars out there they can't study them all matter of fact they can't even count them all that's one job that some astronomers are trying to do is find out how many stars there are it's, it's endless. You just can't do it. But we'll have that in another lesson. The point I'm trying to make here is science is incapable of actually explaining everything in the universe. Please understand that. Science can't explain everything in the universe. How can it be God? How can science be your God if it can't explain everything? If it can't explain simple things? Because um, it, it's just beyond our capability to understand. So people who say that, yeah, science is my God, oh my gosh, they constantly make mistakes. Science says there's 1,026 stars. Oh my gosh, no, wait, science is wrong. Well, wow, your God is wrong a lot. Yeah, if science is your God, I hate to tell you, but science is your God, you got a God that's making a lot of errors because he keeps making errors and then trying to correct them. Um, 
And I love how some people will say, well, scientists are the most open-minded people uh, on the planet doing this investigation. They have such open minds. Really? Not from my experience. Uh, a few do. Most of them are extremely closed-minded. Um, and I wouldn't view many of, uh, or I won't say many, but there are, well, there's no other way of saying it. There's many scientists that are extremely closed-minded I've had contact with. And that's unfortunate because they claim to be the most open-minded people. I had an argument um, on more than one occasion with a colleague who said that he is very open-minded. And the thing is, I was trying to get him to look at different aspects and he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to open up those avenues of exploration because he's, he was determined that he was right. That's not being open-minded. Open-minded is looking at the possibilities that exist out there. Uh, let me give you a great example of this. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Cosmos. Uh, they made it into a TV uh, special back in the 1980s, and now it's been revised again. They've, they've re, reissued it. Uh, it was on PBS. Many schools used it. Um, I actually used part of it when I used to teach um, elementary school and, and middle school. Um, it was written by Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, the great atheist uh, um, astronomer, uh, supposedly a brilliant man. And he states in this book, because his whole th uh, the pre premise of this book is to try to find the answers to life, to find out why we are here. And in the book, in the first opening chapters, he says that we will go wherever, wherever the avenues take us. We will explore every single path. We will go down every road. We will leave no stone unturned as we search for the true answers. He lied. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all because there was one path that was never examined or traveled at all. Never once did he actually go down the path. Could it be possible that there's an intelligent designer who did everything, who created everything? It's never brought up in that book. Yeah, he says he's not going to leave any stone unturned. He refuses to even go that direction. With this one major detour, in his road of traveling here to find answers, Sagan misses possibly the single most important highway to knowledge and wisdom. How sad. And he died without ever going down that path. Let me give you another example here. You see, trying to have science answer every single thing is very difficult because you can't always use the scientific method at times to determine every little detail we have. Case in point, um, here is a picture of a fossil. Now this, uh, there's uh, five different specimens in this fossilized rock that's being shown. These, if you can't figure out what they are, they're jellyfish, jellyfish. For one, how do jellyfish become fossils is fascinating because they're basically 98% water. Um, but these are jellyfish. I mean, if you leave it out in the desert or something like that, if you drop one, it's just going to shrivel up and stuff. It's not going to form a fossil. Uh, and this will be a lesson we'll be doing too, is how do you make a fossil? You have to instantly kill the creature pretty much in wet sediment. Um, and as we'll talk about later, it doesn't take millions of years to do this. Uh, there are fossils that uh, exist that um, 
that are not even 100 years old um, proven because I've seen uh, many pictures of fossilized ax heads, uh, even spark plugs that have been found in California and along the West Coast, fossilized. Uh, yeah, I don't think they're millions of years old. But in this case here, say for instance, I'm just not getting too scientific here. I'm not going to be super accurate. I'm trying to make a point. The, uh, we'll just say for instance that these fossils here, these jellyfish are 350 million years old. 350 million year old jellyfish. Now, the thing is, how uh, old are these jellyfish really? Did we see anybody actually watch them turn into fossils? No, nobody observed this. Do we have someone who was around um, who possibly could have uh, heard about it from someone who did? No, it's totally unobservable. Is there a way to go back in time to actually see this take place? No, that is not possible. So we run into different problems like this. Well, what they use pretty much is uh, radioactive decay, uh, radio dating on specimens and stuff. Uh, the problem is that in radioactive dating of fossils and stuff, you're working upon a theory that can't be tested. I mean, have you, has anybody ever really tested to see if um, some of these like strontium, uranium, um, and, and other ones, these other radioisotopes, do they really work like that? Or does anyone ever be able to test totally to see if environmental conditions can alter the dates? There's a lot of factors here that are being um, just theorized. So radioactive dating in a lot of ways, not all of it is done this way, but some of it is done, quite a bit of it as you get into paleontology is done by basically estimating and using a theory. So you come up with a theory answer based upon a theory that itself is totally untestable in determining the actual fossil itself here. Uh, you can go off of theories, but no one can go back and observe this and you can't really test a solid test on it without using theories again. So there's problems like that. Um, and by the way, when you do this, you don't get one date. Um, like they often show on TV shows and in magazines and in articles that this jellyfish is exactly this date. You use different type of methods, you get different type of dates. What is fascinating, I have found, is if you take the same fossil like you see here and test it with different radioactive isotopes, uh, different forms of it, often you get different dates. Now the thing is, if it's actually the age they say it is, shouldn't that align with every single one of these? But it doesn't do that. But I'm getting ahead of a lesson we'll be talking about later on. The point is, this is untestable. It's, you can make estimations, but then don't say it's fact. You have to rely, uh, realize that these are based upon theories and the whole thing. Now, what's the opposite of this? Okay, here I'm showing you a coin. Uh, I have on the picture here one side of a coin and the opposite side of the coin. Now, someone finds this one as they're walking along, say on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. As they're digging in the clay, they come across this, this, um, this coin sitting there. There's other artifacts. There's broken pottery sitting here. Uh, there's other little uh, clay things with images and writing on it and stuff. So you see stuff like this that's, that's all there. Now, what you have here, this, this little piece of metal, it's silver. Um, and so you think, wow. Now, did, first of all, on the image there, did water erosion cause that image to look like that? 
No, of course, no one would think that. They would think it was stamped. And it was, um, it was pressed with a, an imprint and hammered and made this Im, uh, impression on it on both sides. And if you study other coins, and if you go back and you study historical accounts and stuff, this is a shekel. And what also appears is from one side, the head side, if you will, that is the Greek god um, Melkart, um, or not, I'm sorry, not the Greek god, he's the Phoenician god, Melkart is actually what appears there. You turn the coin over and you see um, there's some markings and stuff on here, which identify it with the city of Tyre. Um, which is in present-day uh, Lebanon, but it has tire. It also has a mint thing, um, mint brand on it, uh, impression that's made there. And by the minting of it, the markings that are there, being it's got this uh, Phoenician god on it on the other side, you can get an idea from studying a lot of coins, and there's many people who study these. They're documented. They're talked about in ancient literature. People eyewitness these things being made. They talked about them. They're frequently used. And so we get the idea that this was minted around 40 uh, to 39 BC, this coin that you're looking at right now. And since it was located right by the temple, it's interesting because according to the, temp, uh, the, um, the Bible itself, the New Testament, and from the Mishnah, um, Midrash, and, and other Jewish writings, and Roman historians, you can see that this was a coin that was used frequently for the temple tax, um, when people would come and pay a tax at the temple. And this coin fits this. Plus the artifacts that you see around here give us a date for the coin also, you see. Dates of the coin are not just the coin itself, but the artifacts that are right there with the artwork being shown, um, other names that are appearing on some of the artwork being shown, it shows that it's, it fits this time period around the first century AD and BC in that time range. So we have a very good, accurate idea of how uh, uh, when this coin was made. Why it is there uh, right at the Temple Mount? Well, this was used for the temple tax. Um, the age of it, well, we see that by the marking actually appearing on. It's got a date on the thing. Uh, where it came from, that is there also. And this can all be verified by accurate historical records made by observers over time. So you see there's a big difference between these things. So unlike the coin scenario, no one was around 350 million years ago to verify the age of that jellyfish. No historian was present 350 million years ago to observe and record the moment that jellyfish actually died. The testing protocol used by the paleontologists is based upon, as I said, theories that can't always be verified, not actual witness or observation. You don't get that in this. Where the coin, on the other hand, does have this. The date of 300 50 million years is a theory that was determined from an untestable theory. And sometimes scientists will then um, go into these things with, I hate to say it, but preconceived ideas. When they find these fossils, they're writing a paper trying to get published. I hope this is around, say, 350 million years old. And then they take it to a lab. Maybe it does, gets tested at this lab and it doesn't come, come quite to that age. So they take it to pay, uh, possibly a second or a third or a fourth lab. So finally, they get some lab that can verify their date. I know they do this. Uh, I have talked with many paleontologists who have done this kind of thing, trying to get the date that fits their paper. When they find it, then they discard the other data and they focus on what they've got. Now, sometimes, often, they get lucky and they get, because like I say, you don't get one date, you get many dates. And so one of the dates will pop up that fits their theory. But the whole point I'm making here is many times the scientists will go in with a bias. Now, 
even Christians are biased. But this is a bias, and this bias can influence their opinion also. So there is a bias to this whole thing. So these conclusions are not based upon testable and observable data. That's what I'm trying to say here. It's based upon faith in theories. But you see the word faith is used there. Now, as we're talking here, science is what I'm showing you is sometimes wrong. Matter of fact, in the past, it's got a really bad track record. It's often wrong in its conclusions at first. Science is constantly having to morph and change its opinion and its stance on different issues and stuff because new discoveries are made and it makes them change their mind. As a biologist who used to teach school in the public school system and also in the Christian school system, I've taught in both, I can tell you in the public school system in particular, my last 10 years of teaching in public school in Illinois, we change textbooks frequently. We would not use science textbooks like in biology or whatever more than five years. In some cases, we only used them for three. Why did we change them over? Why did we spend all this money to get new textbooks? It's because there were errors in them. There's an old axiom that, that states by the time a textbook is, uh, is issued to the publisher and the publisher publishes it and gets it out through the printing press and to the schools, it's already obsolete because discoveries in science are happening so quickly today, this happens. So our school wanting to be really on top, we change textbooks frequently because there were errors in them. And one of the things I would find in many of my textbooks is I would find errors in them. You do. Um, Science makes errors. I mean, what is being printed here as a fact sometimes is going to be an error later on because they find something, more studies being done and more uh, technology exists and it keeps getting a little better. But the thing is, they're often wrong, like the idea of how many stars there were. You see, science is constantly changing its opinion on what is truth. Did you catch that? Science is constantly changing its opinion on what is truth. Thus, how can science really be a good God? It's constantly changing. Let me just give you a couple more examples of how this happens. Did you know that back in the early 20th century, scientists were trying to figure out um, the molecule for heredity? And they didn't know exactly what it was. Some scientists, very renowned, very famous scientists, thought that the molecule we all know today, DNA, um, they thought DNA is too small to be able to do this. It only has four nitrogen base pairs. No, it needs to be, to carry all the genetics for all living things, it's got to be some massive molecule. So some scientists were thinking they were looking for a lipid. Uh, others were saying, no, it's going to be a protein, because proteins have different amino acids. Maybe by having all these different amino acids, we can, we can form different genes and stuff. They didn't understand it yet. Um, so they had all different theories on this. I actually um, have had old textbooks uh, with uh, this discussion actually going on in there, where, and this is back in the early, like, 1920s and stuff, that I was reading this and, and seeing that they were really discussing what is the hereditary molecule. Now, they knew about DNA, but like I say, many of them discarded DNA at that time uh, because it was just too small, they thought, um, with just four nitrogen base pairs to do this. But later on, they finally discover, yes, it is DNA. Um, they found that out basically using algaes and stuff that they did some experiments and they found out DNA was doing it. But then, well, how can DNA do it? Well, with the discovery of the DNA molecule, uh, the work of uh, Rosalind Franklin, I want to mention her, 
uh, and the three people who won Nobel Prizes, uh, James Watson, Francis Crick, and uh, Maurice Wilkins, these guys won the Nobel Prize because they determined what the shape of the molecule was. And then they, they it still took a little bit to figure out how this thing unzips and the base pairs are red. Um, the great Linus Pauling couldn't quite figure it out either because they didn't know the base pairs were on the inside. They were thinking, many scientists were under the impression the base pairs were sticking outside the DNA molecule, um, which we all know is not correct. You see what I just said? It's not correct. Scientists and science was wrong uh, many times. Talking about old biology books, I have some old biology books that state that sharks are cold-blooded, I hate using that uh, term, uh, ectotherms. In other words, their body temperature is the same as the external environment around them. But in the 1980s, when I used to work at the Shedd Aquarium, we had a person who came and did a lecture at the Shedd Aquarium one night, and he was uh, an expert on sharks, and he was teaching us something totally revolutionary, totally against what we had been taught and what we had read in science, that there are some sharks that can actually regulate an internal body temperature much higher than the surrounding water. You know something? In short, science was wrong. Well, not only that, science textbooks I have still in many of my possession that say that sharks could see colors. And we used to, at the Shedd Aquarium, used to call people who had yellow swimsuits yum yum yellow because sharks sort of, uh, we thought, could see the yellow when we're attracted to the yellow. Um, some studies that were conducted, early studies, showed that uh, they did, uh, the color yellow seemed to attract sharks more. So we called that yum yum yellow. And it's sort of a joke on our marine biology trips that I still do every year, but yum yum yellow. Um, but then after they started dissecting the eye and um, using better microscopy, they found out that, wait, the eye, the retina of the eye doesn't appear to have uh, the, the color cones and things in there. So, hmm, well, something's not right here. So they started printing books and saying sharks are colorblind. Um, but now new studies have come out that have shocked the scientific community again, because it does appear that somehow totally unknown. I was just reading a paper just recently on this, uh, just in the last month, about they do believe that sharks have the ability to see different colors, even though their eye structure is different than anything else that would be able to do that. So in other words, what we have here is science is flip-flopping, saying one opinion, then they flip over to another one, and then now they're flipping back. You want to follow a god like that? Can't make up his mind which way it's supposed to go? Science is not a good god. Or let's go to another one. My favorite animal are octopuses. Come with me on a marine biology trip sometime. You see, I get really excited when there's an octopus. Uh, they're so intelligent, they're so much fun. And they used to say the same thing about octopuses. We thought at first they could see colors. And so many textbooks, including my textbook I wrote, I put in there that octopus do see certain colors. Uh, they change colors, makes perfect sense. If they change colors as they do battle and they see other octopuses, they must be able to see color. But then by studying the eye, which is a remarkable structure. Uh, how similar the octopus eye of this invertebrate is to a person's, a human eye. It's, it's remarkable. But as they studied this, they thought, wait a minute, it doesn't have the color uh, parts to it that, um, that we see like in human eyes. So they started printing books saying, no, they can't see color. Well, I have experimented and played, <laughs> called experimenting, I have played with octopuses a lot when I was um, in high school and in college when I lived in, uh, used to go to the Bahamas and um, used to play with them whenever I saw one. I'm fascinated with these things. After observing them over uh, over 36 years on marine biology trips too, I, I'm still convinced, even though the textbooks say they are colorblind, I still think they see color. Well, just recently, some scientists are saying, you know, it appears they do have the ability to see colors. 
here again. What are we seeing? New research showing that possibly it does appear they do see color, so we have science flip-flopping again. They say one thing, then they have to change their mind, and they flip back. What kind of God do you want to follow that's like that? Oh. Or how about another one? I remember this when I was teaching back in the 1980s in Illinois. The power lines that you see, and you get underneath those, you can hear the hum of the electricity flying through there and everything. Woo! Um, as that goes on, this electromagnetic fields that form around these, they were saying that it was causing cancer. Many scientists published many papers on this and wrote books on this and articles, appeared on television specials and things. Matter of fact, many celebrities uh, jumped on board and said, yes, this causes cancer. We have to get rid of these. We need to, to stop this kind of thing. Don't live don't put any house around these power lines. Then they found out that um, this isn't true. Um, those do not cause cancer. Uh, once science actually starts studying this more carefully, again, science is wrong. Uh, or how about this one? I was um, doing a, a youth group one time. I was the director of a youth group, and it was on ABC News. It was, was um, in August of, let's see, when was this, 1996. It was declared on ABC News, NBC, they had them all. All of them were saying this, that they say, uh, said that scientists were stating that there was life on Mars. Now, they said this because they found in some meteors, uh, meteorites that had fallen to Earth, they believe, from Mars, and they had these special little polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and magnetite on them and, and hydrogen sulfides and things. So they said, ooh, this comes, uh, this shows that there must have been life on Mars. And so it was published all over that there was life on Mars. And oh my gosh, even pastors and churches were freaking out. Now there's life on Mars. And everybody was talking about life on Mars. And the thing is, um, we've got spacecraft up there right now, and they've yet to see any solid, provable, testable evidence that there was ever life on Mars. <sighs> Science was wrong. Or how about this one? Another great case of science being so, so perfect. Yes, um, the FDA stated back in the early 1990s that silicone breast implants were responsible for health risks, including cancer, connective tissue disease, autoimmune disorders. Um, it became such a large uh, outpouring of people complaining about this that the company that primarily made them, the Dow company, totally collapsed because these things were banned. That company, which was a major company in the United States, totally collapsed. Um, and so they stopped making they stopped making those. And though there were other companies that were doing it. Uh, later, researchers found no link between breast, can, uh, breast implants and these diseases and approved them. So other companies started making them and issuing all over again. But <laughs> just in 2019, I was reading a paper on this just two days ago. Um, found this paper. Science has again reversed its opinion and has recalled many of these again because guess what? Um, they cause autoimmune disease, they believe, and also it appears that they do cause all sorts of other disorders in, in people. So what do we see? Science doesn't know the truth and so it's flip-flopping from one side to the other. Um, and I love how celebrities who are not scientists at all but always jump on the bandwagon and start per producing uh, and promoting their opinion on it. Um, or I'll give you one more. Uh, <laughs> we could keep going. Science used to pronounce in many of my textbooks that I have on, on DNA and, and um, uh, RNA and the nucleic acids and stuff that we know that there's different types of RNA and many books would state that the types are harmless to each other. But there was a Nobel Prize winning scientist who proved, scientifically proved using the scientific method, that different types of RNA can interfere with others. Again, we see science is wrong. Oh my gosh, 
we could do this for months. We could keep going. I mean, I couldn't do enough sessions. I won't live long enough to show you how many mistakes science has made. You want this to be your God? Yet many people today claim they can't believe in the Bible because science has proved the Bible wrong. Oh yeah, science has such a great track record for truth and accuracy. Really? <laughs> no, we're gonna show you the Bible <laughs> is supported by science. Um, many aspects, not the whole book. The Bible is not a science textbook, never claims to be. But there are certain aspects in the Bible that you're gonna see are extremely accurate. Considering too, this thing was written thousands of years ago, the science that's in here is so exact. And that's what I wanna show you. It's, it's absolutely an amazing, an amazing book, amazing gift. But you know, it really shouldn't surprise us because God is the author of the Bible. Oh, I just listened to a person yesterday who was talking, who said to me that, um, no, God didn't write the Bible. A bunch of people wrote the Bible. They got up one day and these different people and decided to write a book in the Bible. No, that's not how it was done. No, the Bible itself even declares what it is. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, it says, and I'm reading this out of the Net Bible, that's a new English translation. It says, above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That is telling us right there, God is inspiring these people on what to write. God is the original biographer of this book. Um, he is, it's the original autographs, which we don't have, but we have copies, and that'll be another lesson about how accurate these are. Um, God is not like man that's constantly changing. He's absolutely perfect, and if he's perfect, everything he says is gonna be perfect, and he tells us something in his word, then you know something? What he wrote in his word is gonna be perfect also. And in the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, this is amazingly accurate. And that's what I wanna show you. Um, we'll talk about some variants that people will say, well, wait a minute, this seems to be a science error. But if you go back to the original language, get away from English, go back to the original languages, you're gonna see the Bible's extremely accurate, even on little details. It should be, because it's coming from a perfect God. It's an amazing thing. The Bible is not a science textbook. It's God-inspired. The science in it thus is going to be true. No matter how long, how time goes, it's going to be true. Oh, true, science will disagree with it at times. And what I'm gonna show you in this series is how many times science has disagreed with the Bible, yet come back around and finally says, the Bible was right, we were wrong. That happens a lot, which you will see. And we'll use fields like astronomy. Uh, we'll use geology, meteorology, marine biology, oceanography, uh, human biology, nutrition. There's all different types of sessions I'm gonna do on this with different areas of science and show you how accurate. We're gonna look at those science sections in the Word of God and show you how science was wrong. The Bible has these sessions, sections in it, but science disagreed with it. We'll show you how science was wrong and the Bible was true all along. It's amazing, amazing as we see this and how much you're gonna see that science is not in conflict with the Bible. No, and matter of fact, there's been many scientists that are very strong believers in the Bible that are out there. Um, we always think that scientists can't be Christians and stuff or believe in the word of God. Uh, I could give you right now, um, if I had time, a list of over a thousand scientists, reputable, very famous scientists, some of them Nobel Prize winning scientists who believe in what's in this thing. 
some of the more recents and just, I mean, I can't go through a whole list, but George Washington Carver to name one. Uh, Werner von Braun, the guy who invented the, uh, the Saturn V rocket that took the Apollo astronauts to the, to the moon. We'll be talking about him. Sir William Ramsey, who was an atheist for so long and then went out and, and studied the Word of God in the Holy Land and became actually a Christian. He went out to destroy the Word of God and while he was out studying it in uh, the Holy Land and in Greece and Turkey, he finds out that, wow, this thing's real. And my favorite scientist of all time, Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur was a guy who really studied his Bible. And I just want to give you a quote here that just is so fascinating to me. I just, I just love um, what Louis Pasteur wrote at times having to do with science in the Bible. He says, quote, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the works of the Creator. Science brings men nearer to God, unquote. Louis Pasteur, probably one of the greatest scientists who's ever lived. Many arguably say he was the greatest scientist of the 1800s. He knew. He got it right. And it shouldn't surprise us. God's Word says it itself. In John 17, verse 17, God tells us that His Word is truth. And that's in the New Testament. It's also said in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, verse 5, for every word of God proves true. This was the introduction. I hope I've stimulated your thinking a little bit as we go through this. And as I said, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this book. Then what we're going to do is we're also going to focus on science books. We're going to take what science says, give you what science said for centuries, and then show you what it says, the same scientific issue in here, and what you're going to find out for years, scientists were saying the Bible's wrong, Bible's wrong, Bible's wrong. And how many times it comes around and says, wow, the Bible was correct. Now, they don't blow trumpets when that happens, but that's what is the truth. So thanks for joining me. I hope you stay with us, stay healthy, come back for the next lessons coming up on this. And I'm telling you, it's going to just frost your Wheaties, what's coming. So take care. God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. You can also send us a message, let us know what you thought about this episode. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at our website as well. This is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.